Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Soul Talk podcast. My name is Mary Beth Rim, and as a licensed psychotherapist and coach, I am deeply invested in promoting holistic well being. This podcast is specifically crafted for those who are determined to live a healthier lifestyle and are ready to invest in the necessary time and energy to achieve it. However, please be aware that this podcast does not serve as a substitute for medical care or therapy. The primary objective is to delve into the intricate connections between the mind, body, and spirit and assist you in discovering your true self through enriching conversations that will accompany you as we embark on this journey and put in the miles together. Welcome back to another episode of the Soul Talk Podcast. Today's episode is a particularly special one, as it's going to be both personal and very close to my heart. For those of you turning in, tuning in for the first time, this podcast is all about journeys, self-improvement, about the paths we choose and the hurdles we overcome. So each episode uncovers raw, unfiltered stories of courage perseverance, and transformation. Today, we're diving deep into a topic that doesn't get nearly enough spotlight, bariatric surgery, a weight loss procedure that has been the turning point in the lives of many, but also one often shrouded in misconceptions and stigma. And who better to delve into this subject than someone who has lived through it, learned from it, and ultimately emerged with a renewed sense of self. Our guest today is a very special one, not just because he's experienced a remarkable transformation over the last seven years, but also because he happens to be my husband, my biggest supporter, my best critic, and the love of my life. So yes, I'm going to be interviewing my husband, Kevin Rim. You see, seven years ago, he made the brave decision to undergo bariatric surgery. He embarked on a challenging journey towards health and wellness and self-discovery, a journey that was filled with many ups and downs, trials and triumphs. Through his story, we will navigate the reality of this procedure, its impact on one's physical health, mental health, and relationships, and most importantly, the life-altering transformations that occur along the way. So buckle up, because today we're exploring a deeply personal story. We're going to talk about body, about health, about love, about courage, the courage to make difficult decisions, to confront one's ability, vulnerabilities, and to continuously choose yourself despite the odds. So welcome to our conversation on the Soul Talk podcast today. So stay with us as we unfold a journey of transformation seven years in the making. 
So please welcome my guest today, Kevin Ram. Hi, Kevin. Hey, Mary Beth. Uh, thank you so much for being here and talking about this um, this very needed topic. But can you share with us your personal journey leading up to the decision to undergo bariatric surgery? Ooh, that's a good one. I think I think what really you know cemented the decision in my mind was. Um, I started to fail all of my annual physicals. And, mm. you know, that uh, led to some interesting <laughs> lab work. I, th I think I spent almost an entire year uh, going round and round uh, <clears throat> from one uh, doctor to another, uh, going and... Um, starting to address all the different health issues I was having because I was morbidly obese. And <clears throat> what was your highest um, weight? Well, I was right around 300 pounds. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I was you know, set up for failure from a fairly young age because I would um, eat anything I wanted. And then I would go, you know, a stretch of time. I would lose weight. So I was like doing this yo-yo up and down, up and down. And in high school, I um, wrestled. So, you know, I had to make weight. And normally, if you're wrestling unlimited weight class, that's not an issue. But my coach wanted me to be able to also wrestle in heavyweight. So that meant that I had to make, you know, 215 pounds. So it encouraged bad eating habits, you know, from a fairly young age. So were you always overweight, would you say? Oh, yeah. I, I think that I would um, say that I was overweight, you know, Ahead of the curve, you know, I was probably a good, you know, 10, 15 percent too heavy. Um, so it didn't really do me a lot of good. I, when I, you know, reached my late teens, uh, young 20s, I went into the military. Yeah, I remember when uh, you were, what, 20 or 19, 20 years old. Mm -hmm. You were, what, 250, 275 pounds, and you mm -hmm. went on this crash Oof. Diet to get in because I was eating that was the one thing that eggs. said <laughs> I was eating hard boiled eggs and, and salad salad every day for what five months six months I think I went like no carbs no it was more like um, no it was more like uh, like very unhealthy it was more like two months. It was yeah. August when you decided that you wanted to go in, and you did, you did finally get in in October. Right, right. So, so you had to really so drop, I dropped the weight down to 194 pounds. And what was the weight that they wanted you to be at? Well, 194 mm -hmm. to get me in the door because they were claiming I was five foot eleven, and I think that was the maximum weight in the Air Force at the time. Mm -hmm. Did you struggle throughout the Air Force in keeping oh. weight? Oh, always. I mean, I was always, you know, 
one uh, one sloppy appearance away from you know being called to the commander's office and saying you're on the fat boy program. Mm. So, and that's what they called it back then. Yep. Sure so it is. was kind of a a shaming aspect to that. Mm-hmm. But what was the key factors or triggers that made you consider bariatric surgery as a viable option? Because I do know that we had went, uh, when we lived in California, to um, an information session at, I think it was Kaiser. And then we had left like, uh, oh, that's what it was. They wanted you to do at that time, you know, the band mm-hmm. was, oh, yeah, was the popular. Yeah, because that was the you know, almost option at the yeah, time it was, it was like outpatient you go in there laparoscopic you go in and poke a couple holes in you and they tie off your stomach so that you don't uh, uh you're not able to eat as much but we found out that that really didn't work for a lot of people nope. um i know some people who actually had the band and end up having some really significant significant right. oh, yeah, issues right. i mean there there are issues with you know the band can move. Mm-hmm. It can, um, you know, it's inflated, I think, with sailing. So there's, you know, all types of things that could possibly go wrong. But at that time, we decided that that just wasn't an option because I remember both of us were like, yeah, you can do this on your own. Right. And then well, I think it was maybe seven years later to where, um, but what was the really the key factor or trigger that, you know, really made you consider it this time in 2016? Well, I think the biggest thing was, um, like I mentioned, I kept failing all of my uh, annual physicals and it was my liver enzymes. Mm-hmm. And um, when they couldn't, uh, you know, pinpoint a drug therapy, you know, basically, you know, they go through and, start throwing a couple thousand dollars worth of prescriptions at you every month. Uh, I think we still have the bag full of Oh, yeah, I do. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's hilarious because, I mean, you have the... It's funny, um, but it's not funny. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have metformin, which was, you know, the standard and still is a standard for treating diabetes, uh, diabetes, type 2 diabetes. Yeah. You know, but they don't really tell you that that is un controlled explosive diarrhea in a tablet Mm -hmm. and you know it didn't matter how I took it time of day the dosage or anything like that it was uncontrolled explosive diarrhea in a tablet and you know anybody that thinks oh yeah type 2 diabetes no problem I'll take a pill well you start with a pill and if you don't control it you don't change your diet you don't change your habits uh you don't stay on it, you know, you can graduate all the way up to, hey, I'm going to use my liver to help me process the excess sugar in my body. So now you're you're starting to trade. You're saying like, oh yeah, you know, I've already cooked my um, pancreas and I've already cooked off my kidneys and stuff like that. I'm going to start using my, abusing my liver um, and, you know, start doing injections into your stomach once a week. Um, you know, and you're only one step away from, you know, becoming an insulin dependent diabetic. But what was the key factor that really made you consider bariatric surgery this time? What was well, it? You only have one liver. 
And, and what was was what was it that you obviously you had your liver panels were off the charts. Mm -hmm. So what was it that actually non-alcoholic fatty liver disease? Okay. And they didn't really discover that with the um, normal panels and stuff like that. I'd actually gone in and kept pestering the doctor saying like, you know, I think I'm just having some type of hernia issue, like a sports hernia and, um, you know, something in my lower abdominal wall that's not, not quite right. And so they finally uh, went in and said, oh, well, you, know, you, you don't really have the sports hernia, but we did see on the, um, I think it was a MRI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of those fun ones with the dye and stuff like that to mm -hmm. look at the soft tissues. But they go, oh, but we did see that you have, you know, fatty liver, you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. So I go looking for at that and I'm going like, oh, well, that really sucks because mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there isn't really any uh, treatment for that. And the best thing you can do is get rid of the fat. Is lose the weight. Yeah. So I went from, you know, a BMI that was probably pushing 50. Because at that time you were running half marathons. Yes, it was. You know, for a few years. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, and lugging all that weight around must have been really difficult. Oh, of course. I mean, it, and it's not just the weight because, you know, mm -hmm. when you, you know, lump that in with um, my liver not doing its job and then uh, all of the comorbidities that come along with the type 2 diabetes, I was just abusing my body. You know, you can't outrun a bad diet. You can't outrun a BMI of, you know, pushing 50. And, you know, finally when it came down to it, it was like, okay, this is it. I'm, <laughs> if I don't fix it now, I'm going to be dead. And um, so that was the one. So that was really the key. Yeah, I let it get so bad. Yeah, so I, I let it get so bad that my own mortality at the age of fifty was um, a significant factor. And also, the it was interesting the date that you found out that you had the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease was on Christmas Eve mm -hmm. of two thousand and fifteen. Yep, and then by <laughs> May, I mean that set a lot of things in motion. And by May of the following year, I had the um, yeah, RNY gastric bypass. Yeah. So how did you prepare yourself uh, mentally and physically for the surgery? You know, were well, there I, any specific challenges that you faced during the process? Well, I knew that you think I knew that I was going to have a radical change in uh, my eating. And a lot of that really stems from. After the surgery, you have an equivalent stomach to, say, a six-month-old, you know, eight-month-old. And uh, any of you that have young children, grandchildren, whatever, you can appreciate sometimes what goes in does not stay down. And I literally had to work myself back into eating solid foods. So. Prior to the surgery, I dropped um, 
she, I think I, the day of the surgery, I went in and I was, uh, what, 230 maybe? Uh, you know, yeah, so yeah. I dropped, you know, 20 pounds or whatever yeah. in the couple of weeks leading up to the surgery just by going through and... And I believe that was a requirement mm -hmm. that you needed to show and that, that you, you were would, You could stick to, to the diet yeah. because, well, and the thing is, though, after the surgery, the littlest things could make you peeve and, you know, empty the little tiny uh, quarter cup, one third of a cup stomach that you uh, started off with after the surgery. Yeah. Well, what, what were some of your expectations actually going into the surgery? And how did any of these expectations align with the reality of your post-op experience? Well, I drove the um, post-op surgical ward <laughs> there at Sebastian River Hospital. You, you know, uh, I have to remember to send them a Christmas card, but I probably drove those poor nurses crazy because, <laughs> you know, I get out of surgery and I was still right up. I think I ran an event uh, the weekend before I went into surgery, you know, a 5K or a 10K. You know, I was still running and still uh, active and out there doing things. So I come out of the surgery. Uh, I've always uh, had a really high pain threshold. You know, they had me hooked up on the, you know, the morphine on demand, you know, push the button and uh, get high. But you know, it's never been my drug of choice. And, you know, so well, I wasn't well, what doing What were that. your expectations actually going into the surgery? What did you want? What, what were you, what were the expectations? Well, I was looking at, you know, just taking this and, you know, using it to, you know, springboard into the rest of my life because still awful damn young, you know, 55, 54, I think, when I had the surgery. Mm -hmm. And my kids were graduating from college. One had gotten married. One had gotten married. Didn't have any grandchildren yet, but it's like, hey. You know, have all these things to look forward to. And you were sick a lot, though. You were tired all the time, just well, dragging. Well, that whole carbohydrate roller coaster. Yeah. Because yeah. You, you quickly learn after having a bypass surgery that um, sugar <laughs> and too much sugar will cause you to void and you know, you're going to get sick. And you're going to have indigestion, you're going to be burping, you're going to do all these things because you eat the wrong things. You know, like I said earlier, you know, you have the tummy of a six Did you have a weight goal that you wanted? Well, I knew that if I uh, kept up my activity level and um, stuck with what the dietician had recommended, you know, because... You, know, you you go in and uh, they recommend that you're going to be doing, you know, at least thirty to sixty grams of you know digestible protein every day, and that's really just depending on how much uh, physical activity you have. Right. So so you need to you know change your diet so that uh, when you sit down to eat, everything is protein first. Mm -hmm. Make sure that you get your digestible proteins in, um, 
I can give you a hint. Uh, red meat is not as easily digested as other proteins. Right. And so, you know, after you do your six uh, weeks of baby food, <laughs> pureeing everything, right. you know, I went and I tried to puree uh, <clears throat> some Mrs. Smokey's uh, ribs and Mrs. Smokey's uh, brisket. It's still, even six weeks post-surgery, that red meat just does not sit as well as, say, the um, milk protein. I think two or three weeks after, no, two weeks after the surgery, I think you... I ran. You ran a 5K. Right. <laughs> I felt good, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, um, I didn't have any... Uh, pain or anything like that. Uh, but what I did find was um, just being able to get enough fluids because South Florida in May running, you're going to sweat and you need to um, get enough fluid in your body so that uh, yeah. you're not going to dehydrate and make yourself sick. So can you describe the different types of bariatric surgeries available and why you chose the specific procedure that you underwent? Well, well they still have several um, surgeries available. Lap band is still available, mm -hmm. but I don't think you're going to find it. Um, I know the Dr. Radicky, who was your surgeon, I don't think that he... He wasn't a fan. No, he wasn't he, a fan of Because he one. got called quite a few times to correct yeah. You know, yeah. lap bands that didn't work. But between um, uh, Dr. Radicky and yourself... Which, what surgery did you choose for you? Well, I know that I mean, you talked about the sleeve are, and then you talked about... Right. And the sleeve is um, an interesting approach. Instead of uh, changing your plumbing radically, because, uh, you know, I'd say the sleeve is the least radical approach. And they're um, sectioning off part of your stomach so that uh, you, you make your stomach smaller by actually almost like sewing a hem, <laughs> if you're familiar with uh, sewing terminology, you're just going to like split your uh, stomach, you know, roughly in half and um, kit, sew it up so that part of it's not going to be used. But what procedure did you have? Well, I went the RNY. So that's, that's basically uh, you cut it apart. You, you keep the top section of your stomach and that's going to be your main stomach because that has uh, a lot of the nerves and a lot of the uh, connections to the rest of your body. So the very top of your stomach, you're going to keep, but then the lower section, uh, you're actually going to, you know, sew it off like the sleeve, but you're going to leave it uh, more or less disconnected. Right. And then you're going to draw up the piece of your small intestine and, and uh, actually bypass a good portion of your uh, stomach, uh, and it works because uh, it's one of the few procedures that the um, American Academy of Endocrinologists—I uh, think it's called ACE or American College of Endocrinologists—you uh, know, if you read the fine print on their annual uh, reports about progress in the field of treating type 2 diabetes. In the fine print, usually like on the second or third page, they say, 
and people still have a 95% or whatever uh, success rate treating diabetes by getting a gastric bypass. It's right. one of, and it's got, you know, 30, 35, 40 years of observations. You know, it is. Are you on any medications now? No. I went off all my medications in the hospital after the surgery. So, you know, the. But you do still have to take supplements. Right. Oh, I, um, especially being athletically inclined and uh, being out there, again, South Florida, um, you know, unfit for outdoor activities. I think some people have started to refer to it as because you, know, you go outside, high humidity, high temperatures, you're going to sweat. And the biggest thing I found is that magnesium. It's the stuff yeah. that keeps your muscles yeah. flexible, pliable. You don't get muscle cramps. There's only a very small section of your GI tract that absorbs magnesium. And, you know, that's probably one of the most important uh, supplements that I found that I take because of, uh, you know, just my activity outdoor and the um, amount of exertion mm -hmm. that I go through. But, you know, the supplements definitely uh, are necessary. I take multivitamins. I take uh, iron. I take uh, zinc. I take, you know. Calcium. Calcium. Yeah, I think calcium, uh, again, a lot. The one thing I should note about the supplements, you want the ones that don't say oxide. So you don't want zinc oxide because I don't have, you don't have a stomach to digest it. You don't want um, calcium carbonate because you don't have a stomach to break that down into the molecular calcium. So you have to take calcium citrate because right. that uh, is readily broken down. You take the zinc glycinate, all those. So, yeah. What, what were some of the most significant lifestyle changes that you had to make after the surgery? Well, besides you telling me, you're looking fat. What do you weigh today? <laughs> uh, see, see, like I've got a built-in uh, diet coach here that, um, you know, she will look at me and say, have you hopped on the scale? You know, and I get that routinely. Uh, you know, that's probably one of the biggest lifestyle changes because, you know, I think my lowest that I got was like 182, maybe 183, I think, post-surgery. It was uh, 175. Wow. Well, yeah, one time after a you know, running a half marathon in the heat or something like that, I think I might have weighed 175. But, you know, most of the time I've been in uh, the low 180s uh, since I've had the surgery. And, you know, I have this uh, series of photos uh, somewhere that shows me, you know, uh, fat, skinnier, 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 skinnier. And like I switched from wearing the uh, oversized gym shorts to I think one of the last photos I'm there grinning in a speedo um, because you know if I'm active enough you know even at age sixty I can sport a six pack. But how do those changes impact your daily routine and relationships? Oh, you know I I'd say that I have more energy 
and uh, I've gone out and you know addressed you know some other issues you know like uh, being ADHD or um, somewhere on that spectrum. I didn't have some of the best interpersonal habits or the best communication skills. So I've, you know, it's given me the confidence, I think, to go out and address some of those. What was it like, you know, before when you were overweight versus, versus now, obviously you feel a lot better about yourself. Oh yeah. The, you know, there's a interpersonal. Yeah. There's a huge cultural bias. Oh yeah. Big time. Uh, and, you know, so you have to behave in a certain way if you're morbidly obese and uh did it affect your work at all you think well, i think the carb roller coaster and you know i mean personally interpersonally well i you know i think that the um change in interpersonal dynamics because you know the one thing with my work is that i've always worked remotely uh, I think since the mid-90s, I, I've more or less worked remote. Every now and then I take an office job, but most of the time I've been working remotely. Yeah. And, you know, at one point I switched to a standing desk. And the refrigerator was close. Right. <laughs> but I think, you know, you know, some of the things that help, you know, I got to a point where I switched to a standing desk to, yeah. to work because you know, I work on a computer so if I can stand and work, it's um, better for me and my health uh, than sitting. Yeah. But how is your relationship with food and eating now? Um, have they changed since bariatric surgery at all? I like food and I like um, a greater variety of tastes and textures. Uh, well, food is fuel. Right. And we need food. Right. But, but what is your relationship with food? I mean, I know that... I buy food that I enjoy. I mean, I know at one time that you used to sit protein. at night eating a carton of ice cream. Oh, yeah, I can't do that anymore. That, yeah. <laughs> that will kill me. Um, the, um, you know, what I find is that I will, because I'm not eating as much, I, I can spend, you know, I can spend more on food. Uh, when I'm, you know, reading the uh, grocery, you know, the weekly sales circular... You know, I go through and I look for the things that are protein that I can buy. And the only times I buy, you know, quote unquote, junk food is yeah. they're practically giving it away. And sometimes, you know, I bring it home and Mary Beth's there like, why'd you buy that? I go, it was free. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like. Do you find sometimes that you emotionally eat? Did you eat emotionally eat before the bariatric surgery as opposed to? Now? Oh, you know, I, I think that it um, eliminated a lot of the tendency to emotionally mm -hmm. eat because I just don't have the capacity. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, emotionally eating, you know, prior to the surgery, no problem. I could, you know, I could probably eat five, 10,000 calories in a city if I yeah. really wanted to. Bariatric surgery, it often requires a significant amount of follow-up care and support. Um, could you share your experiences with post-operative care and the importance of ongoing support and achieving your long-term success? Well, not everybody has a Mary Beth. 
<laughs> in their household. And the little mini-me's that we've created, uh, named Aaron and Zachary, that are both uh, followed in uh, mom's footsteps. Uh, so, you know, the support system is important uh, just to make sure that you don't lapse into uh, the bad eating habits. Because, you know, I've been saying that, yeah, you know, things will upset your stomach. But like anything, you can learn to cope with that stomach upset and you could start making some bad food choices and eating things that are higher calorie and, you know, empty higher calories. And, you know, there are people that gain their weight back if they're not making the right food choices. So, you know, yeah, that support yeah. is really I've, critical. I've known some folks that but, have done that. You know, and you know, we were having this conversation this morning. Uh, I hurt my knee when I was out running because instead of running over my dog, I was a kind, considerate owner, and I hit the brakes, and I tore my meniscus because I avoided running over my puppy. Uh, you know, but it's curtailed my activity. I can't even really go for a mile walk yeah. without my knee swelling up and it hurting. So I'm waiting for my surgery after that. So, you know, that could be another yeah, <laughs> talk be, here. Yeah, Coming yeah. back from uh, meniscus yeah. repair. But, um, but that physical activity really makes a difference. The support makes a difference. Uh, you know, just going out and, you know, a lot of times around here, it's like, well, where are we running this weekend? Because, you know, we sign up. If we're doing short runs, fun runs, fundraising things. Uh, yeah. We've you know, tailored our life cycle around that. Yeah. Did you encounter any unexpected challenges or complications during your recovery process? I don't really think there was anything really unexpected. I, I probably um, one of the hardest things was just relearning how my digestive system is going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, if you don't get enough fiber, <laughs> you have, uh, you know, remember I was mentioning the explosive diarrhea? Well, you could go days without having to go post-surgery just because, you know, your body has changed and how your body processes the foods you're eating has changed. Yeah. I know that bariatric surgery can have a profound physical and emotional effects on people. Has your body image and self-esteem evolved since the procedure? And what role has self-care played in, in that? Oh, I, I think that, um, you know, feeling comfortable in my appearance. Uh, you know, I'm always getting the comment, that shirt doesn't look good tucked in. And, and my response <laughs> always is, hey, I went 40 years without being able to tuck in a shirt and have it look good. And now you're telling me that, you know, my clothing choices don't match, that I should go untucked. <laughs> it, it's like, you know, it, it just feels good to be able to tuck in my shirt and not have to worry about uh, yeah. my belly done lap over my belt. Yeah. <laughs> so many individuals considering bariatric surgery may have concerns about potential risk or side effects. What would you say to someone who is hesitant or unsure about pursuing this option? I think that the likelihood of success, especially if you're treating one of your comorbidities, uh, you get the bariatric surgery and you have a very high likelihood that your type 2 diabetes is gone. And if you get it in time, 
some of those nastier side effects that your type 2 diabetes causes, like erectile dysfunction, might be correctable as well. Because most people don't realize that type 2 diabetes, being a, something that hits your vascular system, can really mess up your sex life. Uh, you know, so, so, you know, treating uh, things before they get bad, treating your fatty liver disease, the type 2 diabetes, the high blood pressure, you know, a whole list of things, uh, you know, sleep apnea. Oh, yeah, that was a biggie. I don't miss that machine. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. <laughs> I don't miss it either. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, yeah. you go 10 years with a sleep apnea machine because uh, you're going to have irregular breathing mm -hmm. because you are so fat that you can't breathe normally. So, yeah. Yeah. Has, have there been any social or cultural stigmas attached to your decision to undergo bariatric surgery? I don't know. I think the one thing that I had noticed was uh, you go out and you don't, I don't normally order a drink with a meal. Mm -hmm. and, and restaurants are going like, hey, wait, that's our value added water. Why don't you want to pay a premium price for our value added water that we're going to put on the table for you? It's free refills. And it's like, you know, one of the things you're going to realize is protein first. And that means you got to wait to have a drink 30 minutes after you eat if you want to actually get maximum nutritional value out of what you ate. It's actually 30 minutes before and 30 mm, minutes exactly. after, correct? So it's 30 minutes before you eat and you eat your meal and then 30 minutes after. Right. And, you know, if you're not thirsty, okay. you're not thirsty. But, you know, the thing is, is that you have to you know, take that into account. And I think that um, a lot of restaurants, they don't realize <laughs> that if you have... Um, well, once we explained it, they were then they're there pretty like, cool oh. about it. <laughs> yeah, then they're, they're like, oh, well, don't tell anybody else that, you know, we don't want normal people not washing their food out of their stomach so that they have room for dessert. Uh, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's... it's you know, there are a lot of things that we do as a society when it comes to our food customs and fast food and things like that that really make the problem worse. Mm -hmm. Right. I know that bariatric surgery, it's not a magic solution, but it's a tool for weight management. So can you talk a little bit about the importance of adopting healthy habits and lifestyle changes in conjunction with the surgery for right. our long-term success. Yeah. Well, we're always joking that, you know, you can't outrun uh, an unhealthy diet. Right. You know, people go like, oh, well, I'll just run an extra mile and I'm going to have this donut. Or <laughs> right. I'm going to they do this. They even have donut runs or they have beer miles. Mm -hmm. uh, that's, that's tough because anything carbonated, I'd say that's one of the things that um, still, well, six, seven years after my surgery, I can't. Drink something that's highly carbonated. A little bubbles, a little fizz, good. But if it's got, you know, the frothy head of foam and stuff like that, mm, uh, yeah, soda, soda. Right. Beer. I can sip. I can sip a soda. I can sip a beer. Like it takes me a while to drink a beer. So if I'm going to have a beer, I'll have a very expensive one, and I'll have one because because it's going to take me a while to drink it. Um, so, so that type of thing uh, you have to uh, take into account. But you know, I still am on board. You know, I wouldn't change you know, 
my decisions or what I've done to get here. That's awesome. How has your overall quality of life improved after bariatric surgery? Any specific activities or experiences that you now enjoy more than you previously that was were challenging or impossible? Well, I was running and I suppose since I lost the weight, um, it's been easier to run. I don't think I've, you know, I'm never going to be a speed demon when it comes to uh, distance running, but I, I think that's probably one of the, the biggest changes is, you know, I can go out and run an eight minute mile. I'm not going to run a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I'm not crazy enough to think that um, I can't do that without getting hurt. You know, it's, it's something that you have to work up to, especially as you get older. Uh, you don't right. want to go out there and say, oh, I feel great. And you overdo it. And then um, you're going to pay for it. Right. Well, lastly, what advice or words of encouragement would you offer to individuals considering bariatric surgery or those who have recently even undergone the procedure? Well, I think that for me, it was one of the best decisions I ever made. You know, I think that there were uh, things that really influenced my decision, you know, doing my research, uh, finding a doctor that uh, I agreed with. I agreed with his approach. I agreed with the staff. You know, they were a center for excellence. Yeah, they were the best. And, um, you know, because it takes that whole person approach and, you know, the follow-on care. Um, it was funny, the nurse practitioner, she was a runner too, and we actually ran into her at some events. Yeah, so there we did. Were, we uh, ran into her at the Miami yeah. half marathon. Right. So um, you're going to find that uh, maybe your lifestyle changes are going to bring some different people into your life. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, people that are positive and supportive are always going to you know, I feel make you make your life better. So don't wait. Because I, I think the longer that you are in denial about the issues you're having, if you're get, if the doctor keeps saying, oh, it's pre-diabetes, it's like, oh, pre-diabetes. So what's that mean? Okay. That means you're going to, if you don't change what you're doing, you've got type 2 diabetes. I mean, pre? No. Did you have a doctor at one time said, you know, uh, I work at Palm Beach Gardens Hospital, and then, yeah. yeah, I could plop you on a table if, yeah, you, it's like if you need. You have a surgery. coronary event. Make sure you, here's my card. Make sure you call so that uh, right. you know I can meet you there at the hospital. I'll pop you yeah. open. We'll do the bypass, and you'll be good to go. And it's like, hmm. <laughs> but even then, you didn't listen. No, no. It took, I think, oh gosh, wait until, four or five until years. I was running out of body parts, and uh, you know. I had to come to the realization, if I don't fix it, I'm dead. Yeah. I think that, and you don't need to wait that long. Right. It's a lot easier to just fix it. You're not going to do as much damage to your body. Remember that thing I said about erectile dysfunction and sexual activity? You know, you go down that path and you deny it. You know, that's why they sell Viagra. That's why they sell Cialis. That's why they have, you know, the testosterone gel because, you know, you're, messing with your body and it's not going to work as well. And a pill, a little blue pill, isn't going to solve it if you do enough vascular damage. Yeah. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for being here today and talking about your story. I really appreciate it, Kevin. Well, hey, my pleasure. Hopefully everybody gets something out of this. I agree. Thank you. Today we delved into a deeply personal narrative, unraveling a history or a journey that spanned over seven years, a journey of determination, courage, and transformation. I want to extend a heartfelt thanks to uh, my husband, Kevin, for sharing his story with such openness and honesty. His journey through bariatric surgery has been an immense inspiration, and I hope it's been the same for all of you listening. You know, we've heard some trials and triumphs and some physical and emotional up-downs, ups and downs, the impacts on self-perception, perception, and relationships. But through it all, you know, we've discovered the power of resilience and strength that comes from accepting and loving ourselves, no matter what journey that we're on. So for anyone considering bariatric surgery or any other life-altering decision, for that matter, remember it's your journey. And it's okay to seek to seek support. Speak to professionals. Lean on your loved ones. Find strength in communities of people who've walked that same path. And never forget it's okay to choose yourself. So before we close, I want to remind our listeners that it's crucial to consult with healthcare professionals when considering any major health-related decisions. This podcast is a platform for sharing personal experiences, and while we hope it inspires you, it should not replace professional medical advice. So thank you all for joining us today on this intimate journey. We hope that this conversation has shed some light on the human side of bariatric surgery and dispelled some of the shadows of misconception surrounding it. So please join us for the next episode of the Soul Talk podcast. Remember that everyone's journey to better health and wellness is unique, and it's important to find strategies and practices that work for you. By prioritizing self-care, staying active, getting enough sleep, connecting with others, eating a balanced diet, and managing stress, you can take control of your own health and well-being and achieve a better quality of life. Thank you again for tuning into the Soul Talk podcast. I trust that this episode has provided you with invaluable insights and strategies for enhancing your health and well-being. To keep the conversation going, let's connect on social media. You can find me on Instagram under LCSWRunner, or I have a Facebook group called High Impact Series. If you have any questions, you can also email me at mb at mbhrim.com. So please stay tuned for forthcoming episodes where we will delve deeper into a range of wellness-related topics. Remember, prioritizing your wellness is an ongoing journey, not a destination. By consistently putting in the effort and practicing self-care, you can achieve optimal well-being and live your best life. So let's embark on this journey together and put in the miles. (music) 